Time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. That's an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, cause it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. This is a message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Older adults and people of any age who have serious underlying medical conditions are at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19. If you are at higher risk, you should stay home as much as possible and avoid close contact with people who are sick to protect yourself. Call your doctor if you have concerns about COVID-19 and your medical condition or if you get sick. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to uh, hour two of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is um, a professor of English and comparative literature at Harvard. He has a new book. He's been on the show before, but he has a new book called The Language of Thieves, My Family's Obsession with a Secret Code the Nazis Tried to Eliminate. Um, His name is Martin Puckner, and he joins me uh, now by phone. Martin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Tom. Uh, Did you have these cool jingles last time we talked three years ago? I don't remember them. No, we've got some new ones, <laughs> and, yeah, I like them. and some special uh, holiday-themed uh, stuff, of course, which uh, kicked off on Thanksgiving. Um, the 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 new book, Martin, um, right in the title, it says "My Family's Obsession." Um, how much of this is? I don't want to say autobiographical, but but maybe I kind of do. How much of it is sort of? Puckner family inside baseball. Yeah, Tom, you're absolutely right. It is autobiographical. I I I never thought I would write uh, an autobiographical or memoir type book. In fact, I I've, I think over the course of my life, spent considerable time making fun of people who write autobiographical <laughs> books. <laughs> you're like, you know, why do they think their family or their life is so special that they need to write about it? Uh, but here, here. That's uh, it's funny you say that, Martin, because I have a very know, good friend. I, in, I have a great friend in Nashville, and every once in a while, he just he loves to just blurt out these little gems like, "Why is my life so much tougher than everybody else's?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
but you know, so the so, but but here I was trying to write about this secret language, and I'm that that's sort of the official topic of the book, and I'm sure we'll have uh, uh, occasion to talk about it more. And as I was writing about it, I realized no, the the fact that I know about this very obscure language, uh, that the fact that I was sort of inducted into it as a child, and that have this strange family story connected to it uh, needs to be part of the book because this is why I know about it. This is why I myself became sort of obsessed with it and, and, and why sort of kicking and screaming, uh, I, I had to acknowledge that, yes, there had, there had to be a kind of family history strand that needs to go through this book. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't, it, you wouldn't get the full picture. And and yet this um, this language was not necessarily unique to your family. Absolutely, no. On the contrary, I mean, it is sort of strange that my family would be even connected to it, and that part of that strangeness, understanding it, is that autobiographical part. So the the language was a thief's language, a beggar's language, a language of the road spoken in Central Europe, so what's today Germany and the Czech Republic and Austria and a couple of countries there, right, in, central, in the middle of Europe. Uh, and it was, it, was, you know, it was a language of outcasts, of, of vagabonds, of beggars, of what's often called a thief's language. Their name is Rotwelsch, which in that language means beggars can't, beggars language. So, you know, I just grew up as a kind of a, you know, a middle class life in, 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 in southern Germany as a child. Uh, but, the, but the reason my family uh, is connected to it at all is that I had this uncle who was, was obsessed with his language. He was sort of a bohemian writer uh, and composer, and he discovered this language and then, in a sense, devoted his life to it, researching it. He, he tracked down remaining speakers of this language. He, he, he created his own you know, dictionaries of, of this language. He incorporated it into his own poetry. He translated bits of literature into this language, which he, only he could understand. So, and, and he taught it to me as a, as a, as a child. And he died early, and, and, and I inherited this unique archive that he had assembled. And so that's really what got me started. Uh, and, and without that, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't never have dreamed of writing about this obscure topic. What was, uh, what was it about this language that, that, um, that got the attention of Nazis to the, to the level that they wanted to eliminate it? Yeah, so, and so, that, uh, so the, 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 the speakers of this language, even before the Nazis, always attracted suspicion because they were mobile, they were vagrants, uh, and they had this language that most people couldn't understand. It was a combination of German, Yiddish, Hebrew. It, they had bits of Czech in it, a bit of Romani, the language of uh, Sinti and Roma, whom we also know as gypsies. Uh, and so that, that always be, that, that attracted suspicion. Why, why are these people talking in a way we can't understand. Why do they mix these languages? What do they talk about when they turn, it, turn to this language? You know, these kinds of suspicions that are pretty universal. But then the Nazis were particularly obsessed with it because in a way it represented everything that they were against. Where they favored purity, 
this language was a language of mixture and and all kinds of people spoke it. Uh, whoever drifted into this underground world, in a sense, whether they were originally Protestant or Catholic or Jewish or Gypsies or wh whoever, uh, so it it somehow represented, uh, it, it, the, from a Nazi perspective, it, it it was impure, it was mixture, it was suspicious, and and the, the you know the shocking revelation that I had to make uh, in researching this language and my family's connection to it is that, that uh, my own grandfather, which I didn't know at all, uh, was, was part of that Nazi effort to, he really hated this language for, for the reasons I just mentioned. Um, so that became the kind of painful part of the, the family story. And, and with this language, you mentioned that uh, Yiddish and Hebrew were part of the, the mashup, um, some German as well. Um, but yet, you call it the language of thieves. Um, how did it... What's the Jewish part of, of this, that, that we see Yiddish and Hebrew so prominent in this language of thieves? It, it almost paints a picture of Jews of the time were thieves. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. This is why, in a sense, for for anti Semites and Nazis, it it was in a way perfect because it seems to, as you say, associate Jewishness with a kind of criminal underground. And so they would say, "See, this is what we've been talking about all along. All Jews are thieves." So that, in a in a sense, it it fed that prejudice. Uh, and in researching the language, I had to really. Uh, uh, and the problem is all the written source, because this language was purely spoken, all the written sources were, are sort of police archives, you know, because the police started to get interested in this language. And so the, the, these written sources are also often full of prejudice. So you had to kind of read them against the grain. So the best way I could, was able to reconstruct this is that, in fact, most of the speakers were not Jewish. Uh, there were some Jewish peddlers and vagrants, I mean, in, in, uh, uh, in, in Central Europe over the, the ages, but the majority uh, of people were just people who sort of drifted into this uh, underground uh, uh, and then evolved this language. Uh, so why, why is there so much Yiddish and, and Hebrew, as, as, you, as you mentioned? And I think the, the reason is that... Uh, that there was a lot of Yiddish spoken in Central Europe, and it was a language that was sort of related to German, but not quite German or a particular variant of German. And so it was already available as a kind of language of the road because there's, there's a lot of Jewish migration and, and, and mobility. And so I think a lot of these words then, by association, filtered into the language of this other group that sort of shared the streets of Europe. Under what kind of circumstances, or in other words, where and when would this language be spoken? So it, it really begins in the Middle Ages. It's, it, that's the amazing thing that it's so old and it arose so early. One of the first written sources, of the, one of the first people to write about is actually Martin Luther, uh, who, who doesn't like this language either. Uh, um, and so it would be spoken, you know, so linguists would call this language a sociolect, by which they mean the, the, the sort of jargon or language of a particular subgroup. 
sometimes I find this kind of amusing. They even talk about it as a kind of professional language. Um, and, and I think by what they mean by that is once you have a specific sort of subgroup, especially ones that sort of has, composed of outcasts, that's sort of a minority group, they, such groups always somehow evolve a very distinct vocabulary. It may not be a full language, but uh, you know, even today you have sort of the, the jargon of, I don't know, surfer, surfer slang or, or teenagers in particular groups. I mean, subgroups always have a, have a language that, that, that's, that's distinct in some ways, that creates community and that uh, also separates them from, from the official culture. And I think in, in some sense, this is an extreme version of that phenomenon. And... Um, but with those those examples, um, you know, some of the hippies in the '60s had jargon they used. Uh, uh, certain African American groups have kind of a language, or at at least some words that are unique to them. Um, but those things end up making their way into the common language of English. Did, did this have that same effect? Are there words from that language that became part of the more widely spoken languages? You're, you're exactly right, Tom. That, that's exactly what happened. So, and this is, for example, why my grandfather was so angry at this language, not just that it itself represented this mixture but that it, in, in his view, had sort of soiled German, uh, pure German, because some of these words and expressions had filtered into, into the official language, had filtered into German, and uh, mostly without people even realizing it. Uh, you know, even today, German contains quite a few of these word Welsh expressions, except they, you know, no one knows that. Uh, um, and, you know, I have this one example uh, uh, the, to being in a pickle, uh, where the, the, this this is an expression that sort of uh, a, a misunderstood uh, a root Welsh expression that filtered into German and even into English. Right? We we speak about being in a pickle, which makes no sense. I mean, why? What's bad about pickles? Uh, uh, and it makes no sense because this is a sort of this weird misunderstood term that that originates actually in this root Welsh. Uh, 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 world. So, so you know, if, if you ever talked about being in a pickle, Tom, you, you have been speaking root Welsh without realizing it. <laughs> um, Martin, we've got a break coming up here in uh, just a moment. Can you stick around for a few minutes and we can talk some more? Absolutely. Excellent, excellent. My guest is uh, Martin Puckner. He is a uh, professor of English and Comparative Literature at Harvard, and he... Uh, blends uh, personal and professional in this uh, intriguing account of the language of thieves. Um, if you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 FM, our voices radio in Flint, uh, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, and then we will return. Um, 
with the language of thieves. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you are listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with uh, Martin Puckner, who is uh, professor of English and comparative literature at Harvard and the author of a new book called The Language of Thieves, My Family's Obsession with a Secret Code the Nazis Tried to Eliminate. Um, Welcome back, Martin. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for having me. Um, Martin, we were talking about how this, uh, this language um, found its way into German, but can we go back and talk um, just a little bit about how the language evolved, how it, it formed? You said you thought uh, it, it had started back in the 1600s? Even even earlier, even in the you know the Middle Ages, the the, the 1300s, the 1400s, uh, uh, it's 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 very hard to pin this language down because it was not written down. It was a purely spoken language, so you you have to sort of rely. The sources are, are you know usually not the speakers themselves, but someone else who picks up some words and writes about it. Or I mentioned that often the police started to get interested in this language because they felt like it was used by, by, by these itinerants to, to plot some, to do some nefarious, something nefarious, something suspicious. Uh, so the police started to compile this. They would pick up a vagrant, and uh, when they realized that this was a speaker of the language, they would like, try to squeeze more words out of them. Uh, uh, and so, so it's, uh, it, it because the language itself is not written, it's, it's very hard to actually pin it down. But yeah, it, it, it started very early, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in some sense, just a little bit still exists even today. Was the language, uh, uh, the speakers of this language, I am assuming, spoke another language? If it was, you know, um, in the 1930s, um, in Germany, that they, they would speak German and this language. Was it a language that people used specifically so that others wouldn't understand what they were saying to each other? So you're absolutely right. It's usually people, it wasn't anybody's first language, so to speak, or they always spoke mostly German or a German, some German dialect, or in the sort of eastern part of, of this area where the language was spoken in, in Prague, they might speak Czech uh, and this language. So people would do what we now call code switching. You know, they would switch from, from German or Czech into this language in particular situations. And now the question is, when, when did they do it? When was it spoken? And you mentioned that, that because like all languages, it, it, you know, you, Every language is incomprehensible to someone who doesn't speak it, so most people wouldn't understand it. So did, did these speakers switch into language uh, 
to, to avoid being over understood by outsiders. And, you know, maybe sometimes that happens. And all the, all the sources, all these police records of this language suggests that that's how it was used. But I became very suspicious of that the more I thought about it, because it doesn't make sense. If you, let's say, let's say really you are, you are a thief or there's, you're a member of a gang, uh, and there were such gangs, and they did use the word Welsh, you know, that did exist. But if, if you switch into this thief's language, then you basically advertise to the whole world. But yes, hello, I'm a thief. I'm now using a secret language. So, so, that's, so I think actually the language was much more used the way all languages were used, namely as a kind of shared community, you know. And so the, the, it's much more likely that the language was used actually when these speakers were amongst themselves, uh, when they weren't out in public, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, maybe there, you know, occasionally there might be an occasion as even today, you know, when speakers uh, of, of a second language, uh, are, you know, want to exchange a few words in secret, they might switch to that language. But for the most part, it was, I think it was used basically to, to, to communicate amongst, amongst this group. Did it um, start out as as just a few words and evolve into a language? Do you think? I, I think so. I mean, I think that's how all languages uh, evolve, you know begin in the end. They don't spring up fully formed. Uh, again, here the some of the sources very suspicious suggests suggest something a scenario like this that you know there is a gang of thieves. They already have bits of that language, but then they think, you know, it would be better if our secret language had more words. So let's make up some words and, you know, send word to other gangs and then we'll increase our la- the secret thief's language. Again, the, I became very suspicious of these kinds of scenarios because that's not how languages usually arise. They arise because people have a very distinct form of life and a very distinct experience. And so the language adjusts to it, and then over time it, it becomes sort of distinct, distinctive. So I think that's how it started, uh, probably with just a few words or expressions that, that were suited to a particular way of life, and then, uh, and it, then it went from there. And people in your family, um, I think you, uh, maybe it was your grandfather that you mentioned that did not approve of this language or like this language, yet there were other members of your family who sort of embraced it. How, how, how was that? Yeah, that, became, that was for me the big mystery, the, the kind of family history aspect of the book, the big mystery I tried to solve because, you know, when I grew up, I knew, I knew only that, this, that my uncle was sort of a big fan of language and as I mentioned, assembled this archive and tried to, you know, revive it and, and write in it and translate in it. So for me, that was the only member of the family I knew had anything to do with this language. And, and he loved it and he promoted it. It was his whole life. Uh, but, but then, to my great shock and surprise, I, I discovered that his father, my grandfather, also knew about this language was also interested or obsessed with this language, but, but hated it. So this became this big uh, 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 kind of question for me, puzzle. How, how come the, you know, the grandfather 
uh, hates this language because it, you know, it, it, it doesn't conform to his ideas of purity and all of that. Um, and how come then his son devotes his entire life to resuscitating it? And be, because both my uncle and grandfather are long dead, I can't get a direct answer to it, but the, the best way I can piece together is yes, somehow my uncle had an inkling of his father's dark past during the Nazi years. Uh, I don't know exactly what he knew, but I, I think he sensed something. He certainly knew that the Nazis had prosecuted the speakers of this language. And so I think that this was a, an attempt at atonement. Or perhaps just or perhaps just rebellion. Oh, and Lo rebe some combin some combination of rebellion and atonement. Yeah, yeah. loving that which your father hates. Exactly, it's a common phenomenon. <laughs> it, it well, it kind of is. As you were as you no, were talking true. about the two, I, I I couldn't help but thinking, well, if Dad hates this language, there must be well. something interesting about it and uh and you know there's also from a historical perspective so he started this in the late 60s and he was in some sense a typical sort of hippie a little earlier actually sort of a bohemian hippie and it was precisely that moment in german history i i, I thought a lot about that post-war german history where you know after the the end of world war ii for the for, for about 20 years no one wanted to look back. No one wanted to, uh, 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 to ask any questions. It was all just silence and looking forward, economic development. That was the only thing that was interesting. But then the 60s, you know, just the way in which, say, here, uh, 60s was a lot about the Vietnam War. Uh, in Germany, it was about what, 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 what did our, our parents do during the Third Reich? You know, what did you do, Father? And so, that would, so that's when, when this rebellion started. So I think you're absolutely right. It was a rebellion and not just a, a personal rebellion, my uncle against his father, but this was a broader social. This is how the entire society started to ask questions about, about this period, really for the first time. Might this language have been used perhaps by... Uh the underground in Germany during World War II? You know, it's, it, it, it probably was to some extent, but uh, because that, that was the, you know, it still existed in, in some forms, and it, and it uh, um, you know, as it even exists even now. Uh, um, so it probably did, although I also think that, sort of connected to what I said earlier, because it attracted such, hatred from the Nazis, it was probably also dangerous to speak it and to be caught speaking it because it, in a sense, marked you as a member of that, that underground. And Rote Welsh speakers were among the first to be sent to concentration camps. So, so I think that it, it became dangerous. Uh, uh, of course, this was also the period when the entire Yiddish-speaking part of Central Europe was eliminated, sent to concentration camps, uh, or, 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 or fled. And so that, that source or that connected language also disappeared. So in a way, uh, World War II, the, the, the Nazi period, uh, contributed a lot to, to reducing the, the language, even though they ma did not manage to eliminate it altogether. How did you become aware of this language initially? 
Well, that, so that's, that, that's where we go back to the family story because I became aware of it through this uncle. You know, and, and I didn't, as a kid, you, everything that comes your way looks normal. And so I thought, oh, it's normal to have a, an uncle who is obsessed with a secret thief's language. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so, yeah, so because he clearly loved it. And as a kid, I mean, what's cooler than, uh, you know, knowing a secret thief's language? So, so I, I, I loved it. I loved these expressions. I also loved these so I mentioned that it was only a, a purely spoken language, but there were these signs uh, these vagrants would carve into trees or foundation stones in a way to help each other out, warning each other of a sort of aggressive policeman or the one I love is the sign of the cross. If you see a, someone carved the sign of the cross on, on a house, that means that if you act pious, they will give you some bread. So what they evolved was what we know as hobo signs you know, used during the Great right. Depression. And so, in fact, I realized that some of these hobo signs actually come from that underground world, Root Welsh underground world. Uh, uh, so, and, I, and I loved that as a, as a child, too. So, so it was really, for me, the, the story of my history with this language is that as a, as a child, I, I, I sort of get inducted and introduced to it by my uncle, and I love it. And then... Um, you know, later on, I discover these other aspects that are connected to it, that are, you know, not just fun, that are more complicated and uh, heavier. But I, you know, I, I maintained, retained, I think, to some extent, my love for this language. And uh, in the book, every chapter ends with a little vocabulary list so that, uh, <laughs> you know, you can, uh, you, can, you can learn how to speak this uh, thief language yourself. When you started looking into this, was were you researching the language or your family tree, and and they coincided? How how did that work its way to becoming a book? Yeah, it, it, you know, it was very complicated because for the longest time, I thought I would just be. You know, I, inherit, I knew about this language as a child. I inherited this archive from my uncle, and I thought, you know, this is something special. At some point, I need to do something, you know, because I'm an academic and writer. Uh, uh, I always thought, you know, this is a story. I want people to know about this language. I should do something with it at some point. Uh, but, uh, and I did not initially think that the family story would be part of it, as, as I also mentioned earlier, but then... You know, I realized that it just needed to, 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 to be in there. So I, it, it sort of, for the longest time, the, the, the research and to figuring out how my uncle was, got interested in the language, how my grandfather was, why, why I hadn't learned from my father about his grandfather's, uh, his father's past, my grandfather's, not why that was a family secret in some sense, figuring that out. And slowly researching the language were sort of unconnected in my mind. I mean, one was sort of the official book I was writing. The other was, you know, understanding my family story. And it, it was only relatively late that the two sort of, in a sense, connected. And I realized, you know, I think the book needs to weave both of these stories together. You mentioned the archive a couple of times. What was in the archive? Yeah, so, I mean, so I don't, you know, I, it, 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 it's about, we're talking about maybe sort of six 
to seven moving boxes. So it's, uh, it, although because I, I've been dragging this archive around with me for <laughs> about 25 years, I've, I've moved those moving boxes a lot of times. <laughs> so, but so what, what's in it? In, in part of it is books he collected, uh, and the books are actually, my aunt retained most of the books. So he assembled uh, basically a, a, book, a library composed of books on all connected subjects, on history of migration, the history of Yiddish, uh, uh, books about the Sinti and Roma, uh, uh, and, and all of that, so a, a library. But then also sources, some of these police sources I mentioned. He, you know, he would photocopy them from, from archives. Uh, his own writings and manuscripts uh, as a writer and translator of this language. But for the most exciting part is that, is that he, you know, he, I mentioned he tried to track down uh, remaining speakers. And so he, it, it's these hundreds and hundreds of, 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 of index cards, of you know, four-by-six cards, where he would write down expressions and sort of file them and catalog them and create his own dictionaries. They're, he created his own dictionaries where he would dictate to my aunt, and my aunt had to write down, had to write it down. So it's it's a fascinating archive. It's a sort of an amateurish archive, if you will. I mean, he was not a trained historian, but he he spent his life uh, uh, with it, and and it, it's sort of an amazing resource. Yeah. So different kinds of things: his own manuscripts, books, sources, and and his own field research. That's fascinating because usually a language of this nature um, would be passed down generationally, you know, being taught to, um, you know, sons of sons and and so on. Um, So to have, you know, documents and, and things that have been written and translated into this language um it's that's quite remarkable it is it's really it's really very unusual uh it's very unusual this is um and and how did you come by inheriting the archive just because your uncle knew that you um liked or or were curious and and appreciative of this language it, it's a it's a it's a little more complicated. So so he the uncle died very early uh, in his forties actually of a brain aneurysm. Oh. Uh, and um, you know while he was alive, all things Rotbelsch were always associated with him. And you know he would teach me and and others. It became for a while. It's almost like you know all families have sort of a specific words they use or almost like a secret language. Uh, 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 and so that, that's what Rudwelsch became in our family because of him. But when he, when he died, uh, sort of drifted into the background, also for me. But then, um, you know, I was sort of a teenager and <laughs> had other problems, <laughs> other interests. Uh, but then when I went off to college uh, and I started to get really fascinated by language and literature, and that's what I ended up studying, I, I sort of remembered it and I... Uh, I thought, you know what, uh, uh, th- th- being exposed to this language and to my uncle really, I think, is one reason why I'm uh, studying languages uh, 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 and, and literature. Um, and so th- th- that's when I sort of started to 
become interested, in, if you will, in, the, in this language again. And, and then, you know, the other thing that happened is that my, uh, my father died suddenly in, in, an, in a sailing accident. Uh, and, you know, it was very shocking. Yeah. And, and, and so that, too, was a sort of a second impetus because I, you know, even though my uncle was sort of the primary figure, my father also, through his brother, was interested in it. And, and so it was, for me, also a, a way of sort of thinking about his life and that period and the period that they shared. They had also started a literary magazine at some point. So, uh, and that's when I went to my aunt and said, I, I would like to spend more time researching and, and thinking about Ruth Welsh and, and, and you know, the, the two brothers, my father and my, my uncle. And so that's when she gave me a lot of these boxes. They had just been in the attic. Uh, and that's, that's when, uh, when, I sort of, when I got that archive. So, Martin, what's next for you? Will you be, uh, I don't know, uncovering more family secrets or uh well you know after this experience i hope not <laughs> and uh, you know it was it you know not all members of my family are uh, uh delighted about this uh, uh to put it mildly so uh you know i think that for the time being uh i i i'm not rushing to write another book with a memoir or autobiographical component it was quite difficult to do at times and you know, as as I mentioned, some of the reactions, you know, maybe understandably, uh, have not been uh, 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 expressions of pure joy either. Well, this is a, a fascinating story, and and the language itself is fascinating. I can understand how you became obsessed with it and and wanted to write about it. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time, Martin. It's, I can't believe how fast it's gone, but. Um, is there, um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more, uh, not just about the book, uh, that we've been talking about, uh, the language of thieves, but, um, but about you and your other work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website? I do have a website. It's my name, Martin Puckner, P-U-C-H-N-E-R, martinpuckner.com. Uh, if you uh, if you if you just Google my name, you'll you'll find it. And I should also say that uh, you know listeners who want want to have follow up questions, if you again if you just Google my name, you'll find my email. Uh, 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 and I'm I'm always delighted to get emails. I always write back. Uh, happy to answer any follow up questions your 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 listeners might have. Well, this is uh, this is great, Martin, and I wish you all the best and uh, happy holidays. Thanks for spending this time with me this morning and sharing this. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure to to talk with you. Uh, thanks for all your questions and uh, great holiday holiday season for you too. All right, take care. Bye bye. That was uh, Martin Puckner. His book, uh, The Language of Thieves, describes his. Uh, family's obsession with a secret code the Nazis tried to eliminate. And uh, Martin is a professor of English and comparative literature at Harvard. And um, we're going to have a short break here, but we've got lots more of the Tom Sumner program. We're going to be talking about workplace bullying in the next hour of the show. Should be uh, very interesting. And a new app called... uh, Hashtag uh, 
not me, I believe. But we'll get into all that during the next hour. In the meantime, don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse, there's more straight ahead. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. We want to say hello, we want to see you smile, we'd like to sing some good old Christmas songs. With songs about Osetta and his reindeer sleigh, and gee, I just can't wait until it's Christmas Day. We're gonna set you wise, we love to harmonize, and if we had our way, we'd never stop. We'll say hello, we'll see smile and we'll sing some good old Christmas songs. We'll say hello. We'll see you smile. And we'll sing some good old Christmas The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom Bodette from Manger 6. We know you've been traveling a lot this holiday season, and you've probably been told there's no room at the inn. Well, that's just not the case here at Manger 6. Why, for just 29 drachma, we'll put you up in a warm, comfortable stable with plenty of fresh milk for the newborn. 
There's even individual stalls for your mules, camels, or whatever you happen to be driving across the desert. And in case unexpected visitors decide to drop in on you, shepherds, wise men, holy ghosts, it's not a problem at Manger 6. There's plenty of frankincense and myrrh to go around. This is Tom Bodette from Manger 6 reminding you, there's always room at this inn. We'll even leave a star out for you. of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Now, in order for you to understand what I'm going to do next, I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back there a couple of times. <laughs> But he was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought. <laughs> my grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. <laughs> he was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which unfortunately was stolen from him. <laughs> He was a brilliant man. He was, among other things, a PhD. Just a f <laughs> So was his wife. However, besides being a brilliant <laughs> he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease in the <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. <laughs> he was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he... Um, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. <laughs> Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible. But it sure held a lot of gravy. I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called Four Up. <laughs> but it wasn't successful at all. So he invented Five Up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came Six Up. But still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But little did he know how close he came. <laughs> Then I was born, 
And when that happened, my parents were, well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. <laughs> so I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. <laughs> One day, when I was four years old, my father came home. And he found me in the living room in front of a roaring fire, which made him very angry because we didn't have a fireplace. <laughs> there I sat, and here my father stood, burning up. He pointed at me, see, my father was left-handed. He always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. So my father said, Borger. He didn't know my first name. <laughs> See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here. In the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers, my male uncles. <laughs> now, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. <laughs> Male, female, and convertible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer. But I ain't going. Oh, once I made up my mind what I was going to be, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> what I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that two weeks ago, we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. <laughs> How could he be? He died when he was 29. <laughs> but what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. And he got her. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 